Stand one more time just to give honor and reverence in reading the Word of God. And if you need to be seated, God understands. Don't feel bad about it whatsoever. Revelations chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And those whom I love, listen to this very closely, He's talking about a church who disgusts Him, right? That's what it means when He says, I spit you out of my mouth, right? When you spit something out of your mouth, it's disgusting, right? He's talking about a church and a people who disgust Him. But listen to what He says. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I will come in to him and I will eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Be seated. As you're seated, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I come to you this morning and um, Lord, I want to ask you first off to forgive me from where I fail to recognize how much I need you. Father, I know that that's the heart of, of this church. That's the root of their problem. Father, they, they think they don't need anything. And Father, it's not by them actually saying it. Lord, it's the way that they live. They live every day and they wake up every day and, and Lord, they, uh, they, they go through so many days and never even acknowledge You. So Father, in essence, that's us saying to You that we don't need You. We have everything we need. And Father, I ask You to forgive me where I have been this way. And Father, I pray this morning that Lord, You would speak to all of us from this Word Lord, I don't believe it's coincidence that this is the word that you chose to be spoken this morning. So, whatever it is that you mean to say, God, I ask you to say it. God, I pray that you would cause my mouth to not be able to speak my own words or my own opinions or my own feelings or my own emotions. God, shut me up. And Father, I pray that you speak only your word and only what you mean for your people to hear this morning. And Lord, after this is over, I pray that no one will be able to, to, to say that, that they heard a good message from me. But Father, or no one will be able to say they heard a bad message from me. Father, I pray that everyone will be able to listen and say we heard nothing but the Word of God. And Father, I pray that no one leaves here today 
without it changing everything about who we are. Your word is living and it is powerful. And it would be a shame for us to walk out of here today and not allow it to change us. So, Father, I pray you help us open the doors of our hearts. And, Father, receive your word. And, Lord, you change us into everything you mean for us to be. And, God, I thank you and I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'm looking at the last church in our series in the book of Revelation. We have, um, we've been going through the seven churches of Asia Minor. And in this book, I want you to understand that um, basically what you're seeing here is a progression of the way the church is going to be throughout the years of waiting on Christ to come. I'm not going to get into it this morning, but if you were to go into the very next chapter, uh, you, 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 the church is no longer seen after this right here. The church is gone after this. And one of the things that we've been seeing is a prophetic vision of what the churches are going to look like as the years pass by and it comes closer for time to, for, it comes closer for the time for Christ to come back. One of the things that you see in this right here is that by the time we get to this last church, Laodicea, the church is literally a church that honestly is disgusting to Jesus Christ. That's the truth of it. By the time we get to this point right here in, in time, the church is going to be at a point to where um, if many of them are even saved, it, they're disgusting to the Lord Jesus Christ at the way they bear the name of Christ and the way that they live. So I want to look at this church today and see what we can learn from it. You, you might remember that um, uh, we've went over churches that, um, for instance, um, uh, the church at Pergamos. Whenever we looked at it, it was a church that God actually commended them on things they were doing in there, but they were a church that that tolerated sin. In other words, there were sins that were in there that everybody knew was wrong and everybody taught against it, but instead of actually attacking it, they just kind of ignored it and they just went on their way. And He reproved them and He rebuked them because of that. You get over into Thyatira and they were a church that was actually in full compromise with sin. They weren't just tolerating sin, they were even allowing teachers to step up and teach that this is okay. And if you think about those things, you see those things in churches all around us today. Years ago, we've always had churches that to some degree have, um, have tolerated sin and just tried to ignore it in, in some ways. And over the years, we've become uh, uh, less and less um, bold in our way of approaching people in their sin. But one of the things that you definitely are beginning to see here in today's generation and today's churches is you have a lot of churches that are no longer even preaching against it as sin anymore. But instead you have them, they're actually hiring people and putting people in the pulpits that teach them that this is okay when the Bible is plain in what it stands against. And so you can actually see these churches begin to be played out, many of them in our own generation. And I believe that this church too is played out in our own generation. You had two churches, I believe it was Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna and Philadelphia, they, ne they didn't even have a reproach. They had it going on, but notice something about those churches. They were suffering churches. 
The church of Smyrna, God had nothing bad to say about them, but here's what He told them. Hang on. Don't fear to suffer. Some of you are even going to have to give your life to stay true to me. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So we see that there are people and there are churches out there that are faithful and that are doing good. Uh, the church of Philadelphia was actually a church that they were so humble. They knew that they had little strength. That's what it said. Jesus commended them. He said, I know that you have little strength. I've set a great door in front of you, but you don't have enough strength to walk through it. That was a good thing. Because it meant that they had to rely on God's strength. And so God commended them for walking in His strength and following Him and just going through the doors that He opens and trusting that if He opens the door, He'll give the strength for them to walk through it. But today we get to a church that is the exact opposite of this. Today we get to a church that thinks they have strength. They think they have everything they need. They think that they have it going on. They think that they are the great church and that there's no problems and everything is good. And Jesus comes on the scene here and He introduces Himself. And you remember every time Jesus introduced Himself in every other church we've looked at, He introduced Himself in a way that described what that church needed. Whatever they needed, that's what He introduced Himself is. But this time he comes on the scene a little different because in this letter he has absolutely nothing good to say to this church. This is important. And I'm going to tell you, when I studied this, and I really didn't get to it until, I didn't really get to dig into it until last night. I've been studying it all week. But when I dug into it last night, the first thing I said was, God, show me if this is me. Show me if this is me. And so I want you to do the same thing. As we study this today, I want you, don't deceive yourself. I want you to just be honest with yourself and you ask yourself the question or ask God the question, God, is this me? Because you don't want to be the one that is spewed out of Christ's mouth. You don't want to be the one that He's standing outside the door and knocking. That's not a good sign if he's standing outside the door and he's knocking and asking to come in. So let's look at the introduction and see how Jesus comes on the scene. It says in verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen. The first way he introduces himself, he comes on the scene, he says, These are the words of the Amen. Now, the amen is a word that we usually hear when we end a prayer or, or, or something is said in the church that we agree with. Somebody says, amen. And, and that is a correct way to use it. It can be used at the end of a saying to be able to affirm. It's actually a Hebrew word. And it, can, it, it could have been used at the end of a saying or the end of a prayer. And it was a word of confirmation. It was a word that said, that is absolute truth and I absolutely agree. It is undisputable. Amen. That's what it means. Or, many times you see it used in the New Testament. Have you ever heard Jesus say these words right here? Verily, verily, I say unto you, if this, 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 and this, and this. 
Or you've heard Him say, Truly, truly, I say unto you. Ultimately, when you go back to the original translation, do you know what He's actually saying? Amen. Amen. I say unto you. We translate it as verily, verily, or truly, truly, but the word literally means it, this is undisputable truth. This is undisputable confirmation. It cannot be denied. It cannot be argued with. It is what it is. And that's exactly what he comes on the scene as he introduces himself. He's, because listen what he knows. He knows he's fixing to give these guys an awful diagnosis. Can you imagine if Jesus came to you? Suppose this letter started off like this. To the church of Wales Baptist, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I spew you out of my mouth. Suppose that word came to you this morning. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, listen, I've got an awful diagnosis. I'm the doctor coming in to tell you that it's terminal. There's no hope. I'm the doctor coming in telling you that this is a terrible diagnosis. But here's one thing that you need to know. It's the truth. It cannot be disputed. You better listen to it. You better not ignore it. You better not deceive yourself. You better listen and you better act on whatever I tell you to do. This are, these are the words that are absolutely undisputable. They are confirmed. Verily, verily, I say unto you these words. So he comes on the scene, he says, these are the words of the undisputable final confirmation. And these are the words of the faithful and the true witness. Another thing that he's trying to get across to them is this. The awful diagnosis that I'm bringing against you, not only does it come from the final undisputable Word of God, but it's also faithful and it's a true witness. What does a witness do? Why do you call a witness to the stand? They give an account of something that they've seen or something they know, right? Well, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm fixing to give a diagnosis and you don't have to worry about one of your Church members giving witness against you. Guess who you got to worry about? The faithful and the true witness. Jesus Christ, when He stands and He gives witness against you or for you, it's faithful and it's true. Do y'all get that this morning? These are the words of the faithful and the true witness. They will not be disputed. They are final and it is absolutely accurate. And then he ends this thing and he says, or ends the introduction, he says, I'm also, these are the words of the beginning of God's creation. Now listen, this right here could be uh, translated several different ways. And this is a correct translation, but here's the problem with this translation. The Jehovah's Witness take this phrase and they claim that Christ is not eternal with God, but instead that Scriptures like this prove that Christ was created by God. That He was His greatest creation. And there are many issues with that, but to get into the context of this letter or to figure out what it, why He wrote this letter and what's going on in this letter, you've actually got to go back to another book to see 
what he means when he describes himself as the beginning of God's creation. So, for instance, and I'll give a little history on it in just a minute, show you a few pictures that are pretty neat. Colossians, the church that he wrote to in Colossae, I believe is how you say it. The letter that he wrote to the Colossians, he actually addresses the church of Laodicea in here. Colossians is actually, um, I think it was six or eight miles away from Laodicea. You had a, you had a tri-city here. You had Laodicea, and then you had Colossia that was six to eight miles away with its mountain region. And then on the other side of this thing, you had a city called Hierapolis, I believe is what it was called. Hierapolis was, was on the other side of the city about five miles away. And in these tri-cities right here, you have this um, issue of a false teaching that's going on. So Paul writes the Colossians and he addresses it. So we'll go through these verses right here. In Colossians 1, chapter 15 through 20. Go with me on that. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now here he's talking about, when he says the image of the invisible God, he's talking about Christ in the flesh, right? He's talking about when you see Jesus Christ in the flesh, what do you see? You see an image of the invisible God. And Christ is the firstborn of all creation in the flesh. But look at verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. So we're still talking about Jesus, right? But what Paul is trying to get across to the Colossians is this. You have a teaching that has come in here that Christ is not God. But yet, He was a good man. Good prophet. One who was a great teacher. But I want you to understand something. He is a man. Absolutely. But He is also God. And He is the Creator of all things and He holds all things together. And then verse 18, He says, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent or that He might have supreme rule. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Did y'all catch that? For in Him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now go with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face. Here's the point. Paul is writing to address an issue that is going on, a teaching that is going on in both Colossians and Laodicea. Keep going with me to prove my point. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. And the reason I'm going to hammer down on this is because you have the Mormon faith, Jehovah's Witness faith. You have a lot of faiths who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. The Bible clearly tells us in the book of Psalms, a man can't pay for another man's sins. For all men have sinned and fallen short of God. Only the perfect sacrifice that God sends in His Son, only God can come and pay for your sins. 
So Jesus Christ is addressing something here. Go with me to Colossians 2 verse 9. He says, For in Him, and He's talking about Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, in the body of Jesus Christ is all of who? God. Let's look at just a couple more and I'll, I'll get off this horse. Colossians chapter 4 verse 13 through 16. <clears throat> he says, For I bear witness, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So again, we're seeing this tri-city here. All right? Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the ch church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, you have it, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So now let's put all this context together. You have Colossia, you have Laodicea, you have Hierapolis. And Paul says, I'm writing to the Colossians about this problem. Make sure you send this letter to Laodicea and make sure you send it to Hierapolis. You know why? Because they got the same issue. They got the same false teaching. But just to finish and throw the final blow to this thing right here, look at John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now go back to Revelations with me, and let's read this introduction one more time. And to the angel of the church... In Laodicea, write the words of the indisputable final confirmation, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In other words, all of these things that you're serving and all of these things that are created, I'm not just a good man. I'm not just a good prophet. I'm not just a, a, a man who lived a perfect life. I am the beginning of all of God's creation. All things were made through me, by me, and for me. In me, all things consist and all things are held together by the word of my power. I am the God of all this creation that you worship and you serve. And I have the final answer for you. And I am a faithful and I am a true witness. This is all Jesus is saying. But now, let's get into the awful diagnosis. Look, at, look with me if you will, because he's talking to a very prideful church right here. And he, he wants them to understand that things are not looking good. So look at the way he starts out verse 15. I know your works. You know, every other letter we've written, this is number seven, every other letter we've read so far said this same statement, I know your works. But normally after this statement, there comes something good. He says, I know your works. I know you're faithful. I know you, your service. I know your love for the brethren. He says something good. 
But in this right here, he starts this letter and the only thing he says is, I know your works. That's it. We stop. I know your works. Normally there's some kind of condemnation, but not here. Nothing but an awful diagnosis. And here's the diagnosis. You are neither hot nor are you cold. I wish that you were hot or you were cold, but because you're neither hot nor cold but lukewarm, you make me sick. Ain't that an awful diagnosis? Oh, I'm telling you, when I read this last night and I really began to examine myself, I asked myself the question, God, God, do I make you sick? You know what He told me? At times. At times you do. And then I had to ask Him why. And He began to explain. So He, he don't leave you without answers. He's fixing to give you the answers here in just a minute. So He gives this awful diagnosis. But to understand this context, to understand what He's saying right here, I want to go back and give you just a little bit of history on Laodicea. First off, Laodicea was very rich, okay? Very rich. Matter of fact, in 60 A.D., this letter was written in about 90 A.D., alright? In 60 A.D., a great earthquake hit and destroyed this place. Every other city around here received aid from Rome to rebuild. Laodicea said, thanks, but no thanks. We don't need your money. We'll just rebuild ourselves. They're a very rich town. They're a banking town. They're literally on a crossroads. They're one of the major metropolis, I guess you could say. And, and there's a north-south trade road that comes through Laodicea. There's an east-west trade road that runs through Laodicea. Normally it's one or the other. This is an intersection. People come from every direction to this town. It's a banking town. There's so much gold in this town that the Jews were supposed to pay a temple tax every year. It was half a shekel. Every Jew over the age of 21, male over the age of 21, was supposed to pay a half a shekel of gold temple tax. All right. Well, it, it, the, there was so much gold in this place that in order to protect the currency of all Asia Minor, the governor of Laodicea said, I want to make this place Fort Knox. You know what Fort Knox is. In other words, I want to store all the gold up here so that the currency holds its value. All these coins that we have, they will, they will hold its value from this gold that we have right here. And in this time that, uh, that he wanted to keep this gold in the city, here's what he did. He told the Jews, no gold leaves this city for any reason. Well, the Jews disobeyed him. And they decided they're going to pay their half a shekel um, gold tax anyway. Well, when they collected it all, the governor found out about it. He intercepted the gold. He took it all in and it came out to be somewhere around 7,500 shekels of gold. Now, if that's how many Jews were in this town and it's a pagan city, remember, each Jew had to pay half a shekel. Now, I'm not real good at math, but if there's 7,500 shekels he collects, and there's half a shekel per every Jew over there, just the ones over the age of 21. That's a very, very large population, and all of them are rich. So this is a very rich, very, very wealthy, gold-wealthy banking town. Um, they, they, this was a town that had a, a flock of sheep that had such a silky wool that literally they were famous all over Rome, the Roman Empire, 
full, people came from everywhere to have their to, to buy their wool and to buy their clothes. So they had these sleek black clothes that they came from 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 these sheep. So again, they were famous for their black wool. They were famous for producing an eye salve. All this context is important for you to understand the letter. So stay with me. They had a powder that they actually uh, made in this place. They produced it in this place. And when they mixed this powder together, it formed an eye salve that if they would take and put it in a paste over, a, over an eye infection of any kind, that it would heal the eye infection and they would be able to see out of their eye once again. So again, this was a place of a, a healing center for the eyes. This was a place of, uh, of wealthy clothes. Basically, if you wanted an Armani suit, you know where you went in Greece to get it? You went to Laodicea. If you wanted a Ralph Lauren suit, or you wanted you wanted to buy whatever this uh, uh, this Italian wear that you want, if you want the best of the best, you go to Laodicea. Everybody in Laodicea is dressed to their finest. They they are all rich. They all are rich in gold. It's a great city. But the problem, the problem was their water supply. They had an issue. Look at those pictures. Go through those pictures with me. Get my media team on. While they're finding those pictures, I want to remind you, you've got Laodicea, right? You've got Colossia, which is, um, Colossia is a mountainous area that has this cool water that runs down about five, six miles away. Then you've got Hierapolis. Hierapolis is a place that has hot springs. So they got hot water over here on this side that people come from all over, still do today. I'm going to show you beautiful pictures. I'm going there one day. But they go to this place, to these hot springs for the therapeutic value, and then they go to Colossia, and there's this cool mountain that comes from the snow that melts off the mountain. But all of it, no matter where they get it from, has to travel. They are pretty certain that they got their water from Hierapolis, from the hot springs. Here's why. Here's some water lines that they have dug up in the last 10 years that came from the water source to Laodicea. You see a problem with it? It's caked up with what we call calcium carbonate. It comes from, it basically precipitates out of hot water or warm water and it clogs the pipes up. So here's some pipes from Laodicea. Go to the next one. This right here is two lines. There were two water lines that come from two separate sources, but both lines had the same problem. They were above ground and they would travel five or six miles or more, and by the time they traveled, even if it come from the cool water, by the time it got to them in this 100 degree temperature of this place they were at, they, 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 the water is going to be warm at best by the time it gets to them. Or if they have it coming from the hot springs, the best case scenario is it's only cooled down just a little bit by the time that it gets to them. But these are two of the water lines that are actually running to Laodicea today. Go to the next picture. This right here is Hierapolis. Beautiful place. It's a big tourist attraction in Greece. This was just a few miles, and this would have been probably where their water source come from. But these are hot springs, and you'll see pictures of people uh, bathing in these hot springs, and they are all over the mountainside right here of Hierapolis, these little pools of hot springs. Go ahead and go through the next few. This is another picture of it. Ain't that beautiful? This is another picture of it. Uh, and like I told you, if the Lord lets me, I'm going. I'm, I'm going to this place. Go ahead and go to the next picture. 
This is another picture. But you can see all the calcium carbonate that builds up coming down through there. So more than likely, this is where their water source come from. Go to, sorry about the girl in the bikini. It is what it is. <clears throat> this right here is they've laid glass. This is actually in Laodicea. But you can see in the background, you see that white mountainside? You're standing at the Temple of Apollo on top of it where they're excavating. They've only just dug it up in the last 10, 15 years. They've only just found it. But you're standing on the Temple of Apollo right now and you can look underneath the glass and see the excavation that they're doing. But then in the background, you can see how close Hierapolis actually is. It's just right there. Go on to the next picture. This is actually, the they call it the uh, Colonnade Street, I believe is what they called it. But this is just the main walkway that went through Laodicea. Again, just a very rich town. Go ahead and go through the... And then that's a picture from a side looking back at the uh, the Temple of Apollo and then you can still see Hierapolis back there in the back and go to the next one if there is any more. And then again, this is one of the corners of the Temple of Apollo. You can see all this was hand-carved. Go ahead and go to the next one. <clears throat> uh, this is the front entryway going into the Temple of Apollo where they worship. Go ahead and go to the next one. This is one of the corners, and you can actually look up at that corner, and if you could get close enough, the detail in this thing is amazing, the work that they put in to building these things. Uh, I don't know if I have any more. Is there any more? That's uh, another corner. That's another front entryway of the Temple of Apollo. And then that's just another view of the city and just some of the ruins that are left. But basically what I want you to understand is that when you see the understanding of what the city had, what their problem was. Think about it like this. They are a rich city full of gold. They have great clothes that come from the black sheep that they have there, the silky sheep that they, the wool that they get from them. And then they are also a, a city that um, is a banking town. They have eye salves, so they have, they, they're, they're known for healing of the eyes. But their problem is that their water source is terrible. By the time it gets to them, you, you ever got in your car in the summertime or, or maybe it's been a little warm and you had a bottle sitting there and you were thirsty and you thought, hey, I'll give it a try. And you open the top on it and you turn up and what happens? If it's warm or it's a, it's a little hot, what do you do? It's terrible. It's disgusting. And so let's go back with that context and read his letter one more time. In verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. These people put yourself in their sandals. They know what he's saying. They've been, they've tasted this water. They know what he's talking about. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then here's the question. Why, Lord? Why does lukewarm Christians make you sick? Number one answer. The lukewarm are spiritually self-satisfied. Look at verse 17. For you say... In other words, this is what you say. You may not actually say it out of your mouth, but this is the way you live every day, and by your actions, this is what you say. You say, I'm rich. You say, I have prospered. I need nothing. So in other words, 
The lukewarm are spiritually self-satisfied. They don't need anything from God. You, you can tell if you fall under this diagnosis just by looking at how hard you go after God. For instance, and I shared this with you last week, don't raise your hand, but how many people, I wonder, woke up this morning and took a breath and didn't stop for one second to say, God, You gave me that breath. How many of you stood up on your legs that you're able to walk on, if you are, and you stood up and you said, God, the only reason I'm able to walk is because You gave me the grace and the strength to be able to do it. There are many this morning that didn't get up and walk this morning. How many of you opened your eyes and saw the light of day and you said, God, thank You that I'm able to see this morning. If you fell short of that, I want to tell you something. The truth of the matter is, you looked at God this morning and you said, hey, thanks but no thanks. I've got this. I've got this. I I can do this. Don't worry about it. God said that's a lukewarm Christian. A lukewarm Christian is spiritually self-satisfied. So ask yourself a question. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? You just go through your day doing what you do and just figuring out on your own. And again, this is not to make you mad. Jesus is not trying to make you mad. Here in a minute, He's trying to tell you, I love you. I want to correct you. I have nothing but good desires for you. But if it's true, listen, these are the words of the amen. (laughs) These are the words of the faithful and the true witness. If the shoe fits, i got to wear it. And I looked at this last night and I asked God, God, is this me? He said, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes that's you. What about your greatest desire? How's your worship? What do you get your greatest desire in? Is it the gift of the giver? Look at Romans chapter 1, verse um, 24 and 25. He said, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And here's why. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And here's the lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. You enjoy all of His goodness that He gives you, but yet you don't take the time to come in and say, God, thank you. You you know the difference between you and the couple that lives in the mud hut in Guatemala? You don't know the only difference. Why why weren't you there? Why why aren't you in Guatemala right now? Why, Why do you get to be here? Why do you get to be a diesel mechanic? Why do I get to work in a water treatment facility and, and be able to live in a nice house and drive a nice car and a nice truck and have toys to play with? and or, or, or just anybody. Why do you get to live in a house that has heat and cool? The only difference between you and anyone else in this world is God's undeserved mercy. That's it. Do you think God looked at you before you were born and go, Oh, well, Nick King deserves it more than this guy over here. 
Do you think God looked and said, well, I, I know Kevin's going to be a better person, so because Kevin's going to be better, I'm going to give him more. Do you really think that's what happened? I can take you to Scripture and prove it's not. The Bible said God reigns on the just and the unjust alike, that His sun shines on the good and the bad. It is only the grace of God, His undeserved mercy, His undeserved forgiveness. And so what do you worship? Do you live for all of these created things and do you live your life to serve all of these things that are created? Or do you take the time out of your day, out of your week? You know, God only asks for one day, really. One Sabbath day to stop what you're doing and to look up and go, there's the source. There's the source of it all. And how hard is it for us to even do that? And so again, what he's saying is that you say, whether you realize it or not, I don't need anything. I've got it all. I'm spiritually self-satisfied. And it's not that you actually come out and say it. You say it by what you do. Either you acknowledge Him for who He is and what He has done in your life and you are conscious of that and when you're not conscious of it, you, you, you ask Him for forgiveness and you get yourself back in line with it or you keep walking day after day after day in your own routine doing your own thing and God said, you make me sick. You are my creation and you pay me no worship. I have given you so much grace and you think you deserve it. You're spiritually self-satisfied. Where do you turn in your time of trouble? To yourself or to God's Word? In other words, are you spiritually self-satisfied? Do you look at yourself in your time of trial and instead of actually turning to Him and His Word and what He would have you to do, instead, what do, you, what do we do? We go with our emotions. We go with what we want. We're spiritually self-satisfied. And here's what God said. I said, Kevin, sometimes you make me sick. And you know the only thing I could say? You're right. This is undisputable. This is the amen. This is the faithful and true witness. And the only thing I can do is beg your forgiveness and get back where I belong. The second thing, and I've only got two, the lukewarm, they deceive themselves. The lukewarm not only are spiritually self-satisfied, but they deceive themselves. Look what he said in verse 17 again. He said, For you say that I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, but you don't realize. What does it mean when you don't realize something? You're deceived. You don't even know it. You don't even see it. You're blind to it. You don't realize that the truth of the matter is, is even though you may have all the gold in the world, even though you may have the finest clothes, even though you may, uh, you may have the best healing medicines and you may be able to take care of your body and things are going so good, the truth of the matter is this. You're wretched. You're pitiable. In other words, you're to be pitied. You're poor, you're blind, and you're actually naked. And so, then He gives us counsel. And I love this right here, because Christ never leaves us hopeless. He wants you to know the truth. 
He wants you to see it. But His desire is not for you to perish. His desire is not to spew you out. His desire is to give you a path to get back to where you belong. Christ never leaves us hopeless. Even, and listen, get this, write this down, even those who disgust Him. (laughs) Please get this. Even those who disgust Him. He never leaves hopeless. He desires for them to turn from their evil ways. So look what He does in verse 18. I counsel you. I'm going to give you counsel. I'm going to give you direction to follow. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Basically, here's what He's saying. Replace your poverty because even though you don't see it, you're broke. You have all the gold in the world, but you're broke. I've said this before, but I can't, I can't help but say it again. My, my, my granddaddy, and, and, and he's a Christian man, as far as I know, he put his faith in the Lord Jesus years ago. But he's never borrowed a dime in his life. So I had a dairy farm. I owned every piece of a farm equipment you can think of. He, uh, he, he's always had uh, a lot of land, a, a big house, nice house. He, he, he's done well for himself. And never has he ever borrowed a dime. He went to buy a new truck one time. He wanted to buy a Dodge diesel truck. If anybody's ever looked at any Dodge diesel trucks, you know they're high dollar. So he goes into the sharp dealership and he goes in. He says, I want this truck and I want it with this, 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 and this, and this. And they come back out and they go, okay, how do you want to pay for this? He said, well, I'm just going to pay for it. Well, I understand that, but how are you going to pay for it? Do you want? Are we going to finance this? Do you want us to finance it? No, I'm just going to pay for it. And Last time I went to sit down and talk with, uh, I had to talk with Preston Murray about a little issue that I had, and he was very good to me. Uh, uh, so it was a great relationship, and so I got nothing bad to say about them whatsoever, good people. But whenever I sit down with him to work it out, he said, I remember when your granddaddy came in here one time, we were trying to figure out how he's going to pay. He said, he just got out and he just paid cash. He said he's never borrowed a dime in his life. He's always had it all. Still has it all. Sold his farm, built a big old house in Columbia, living nice, got a, got a big old nice building and still, still doing very well for himself. But right now, you know where he's at? Murray Regional Hospital with a vent down his throat. Can't acknowledge nobody. If he had a hundred sackfuls of gold beside of him, would he be rich? At the end of the day, What does it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? You don't know how many bedsides of people I've sit beside that worked their whole life living for this. And then when they come to the end of their days or the doctor comes in and says, that's it, it's terminal. What does it matter then? Does it matter at all? And so he says, I counsel you counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. In other words, lay up your treasures in heaven. It's okay to live for this stuff down here as long as you're just enjoying it and you worship me, but when you live and your life is consumed by these things, you think you're rich and yet you're broke. You're naked. You're blind. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Let's go through these last quickly. So that you may be rich. You will be rich. If you lay up treasures in heaven, 
And I counsel you to buy white garments from me. Remember, they had these black garments. Remember? Jesus comes on the scene. Here's why He says, buy white garments from me. In other words, white garments have always represented righteousness that Jesus gives and only Jesus gives. And He says, I have white garments that you can buy from me. But how do you buy garments and how do you buy treasures in heaven when you're broke? One last Scripture and we're done. Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3. Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Did y'all catch that? He who has no money. In other words, he who recognizes that he's broke, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear so that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. What are the requirements to buy from Jesus when you have no money? Come. Hear. Incline your ear. Listen. Believe. If I tell you I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you, guess what? It's done deal. Only thing I ask you to do is come, hear, listen. That's how you buy from Jesus when you're broke. You don't bring nothing to the table. The only thing you do is throw your arms up and say, God, i got nothing to bring. I'm broke. I'm naked. I'm blind. Are y'all getting this? Somebody say amen. It's undisputable whether you say amen or not. But you buy from Jesus even though you're blind, broken, naked. You buy these things from Him by hearing Him, by coming to Him, and by trusting that when He says He makes His covenant with you, He makes His covenant with you. But then look at verses 6-9 through of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts and let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him. The last step is you can't stay where you are. Guys, listen to me. You can't stay where you are. If you're staying where you are, you are lukewarm. You are self-satisfied and you are self-deceived. And I'm telling you right now, Jesus is saying you disgust me. But there's hope. I counsel you. Come, hear me, listen to me, trust me. Let's finish up in Revelation chapter 4, verse 19. Or actually, let's finish verse 18. He says, buy white garments from me so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Remember the salve that they made? He said, listen, you got all this eye healing stuff, but you can't even see yourself. Buy salve that you can see. And then verse 19, I love this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Anybody in here like discipline? You ever enjoyed it? He said, I love you. I'm not going to leave you where you are. I want to see you come out of this. 
And then look at verse 20 because we got we had an awful diagnosis, but we got an incomparable promise. Listen to this promise. Behold. It's, you know what the word behold meant? Whenever, whenever Christ will say behold, you know what He meant? He meant this is an amazing thing. You better open your eyes and see this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. What a beautiful promise. Listen, a lot of people take this out of context and they, as far as application goes, for those of you that are part of our Wednesday night class, a lot of people would take this verse and go, this is an evangelistic verse. This is speaking to unbelievers. God is standing outside the door of unbelievers and He's knocking and He's, and He wants to come in. But is this letter written to unbelievers? So the context of this can't allow us to interpret that scripture that way. This is to you, the church, the believers, and He's telling you that are lukewarm, that are spiritually self-satisfied, that are naked, blind, and broke, but don't realize it yet, but hopefully your eyes have been opened by Him today. Here's what He's saying to you. I'm standing at your door and I'm knocking. And if anyone will hear my voice, I will open the door and I'll... Let me get that back. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and what? And he, you, open the door. I will come in and I will eat with him. In other words, basically what he's saying is this. I have no greater desire than to come into the innermost rooms of your life. I want to sit down and watch TV with you. I want to go to work with you. I want to be in every area of your life. And I'm standing out here and I'm knocking. If you open the door, I'm coming in. And I'm going to dine with you. And I'm going to make a covenant with you. And I'm going to love you. And I'm going to lead you. And I'm going to guide you. What a beautiful promise. Somebody needs that promise today. If that's you, we're going to stand right now. This is a time of invitation. This is a time for you to step out unashamed to say, I'm broke, blind, and I'm naked, but I want to buy from Him white garments. <laughs> I ain't got no money, but I heard the Word this morning and I believe what He said. And if that's you this morning, there ain't no better time for you to quit being ashamed of Him and to step out and say, I know it's real. Preacher, I know what you're saying is true. And this morning is the morning that I am going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and believe what He says. If that's you this morning, don't wait. Just step out and don't worry about who's next to you. Just come and say, this morning is the morning. I trust Him. Would you come? Is there anybody?